Thank you to our scripture reader. If you have a Bible, why don't you go ahead and grab it? We are going to be in Matthew 5, as was indicated in our scripture reading. As I said to us earlier, we're going to be continuing in our Beatitudes series. Now, if you don't have a Bible, I would invite you. I, I asked us earlier to consider connecting with us through guelph.churchofthecity.ca backslash connect. If you let us know that you don't have a physical Bible, we'd love to get a physical Bible to you. Uh, for our purposes this morning, you could even download the YouVersion Bible app or search online for a Bible, maybe through BibleGateway.com or through another means. But we're going to be in Matthew primarily, but I'm also going to be jumping around a little bit in the scriptures. Now, before we jump into this morning's message, why don't we take a moment to quiet ourselves, to stop, to consider how we're feeling. Uh, maybe you're a person you're not, don't identify as a follower of Jesus, a Christian or a disciple, and you're tuning in. I just invite you even in this moment just to be quiet, to be still, maybe slow down your breathing. So take a moment to do that, and then I'll pray, and we'll jump into this morning's teaching on the third beatitude. And so, Jesus, we do thank you for this opportunity this morning to be still, to be quiet. I pray that as we listen, that your spirit would impress upon our hearts the truth of your teaching and that you would change us. I pray, Lord, for anyone that is tuning in this morning or coming across this message who has not committed their life to following you, to being your disciple, God, that you would impress upon their heart today the good news of the kingdom of God and your invitation. We love you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. We, as I said, are continuing in our series on the Beatitudes. And three weeks ago, I did an overview and an introductory message to Jesus, the teacher, then to the Sermon on the Mount, kind of a, from a bigger perspective, and then the Beatitudes in general. And then for the last few weeks, we've been going through each Beatitude in particular. And you'll maybe remember in that first message that I challenged us with the question of what is your vision of the good life? Because here in the Beatitudes, Jesus gives us a vision of the good life according to his kingdom, according to his rule, and according to his reign, that these are the blessed ones describing character traits of his disciples and of his followers. Now, as you've been listening, maybe you've continued to be challenged with that question. You've been doing some introspection as it relates to your own life and to your own vision of what you would say is the good life. In order to help us have a better understanding regarding the, the provocative nature of each of these sayings to Jesus' primary and first audience of the Beatitudes, I want to review a little bit of that because once again, we come to the text and we come to the scriptures and we can read it through the lens of our lives, of our experience, of our history. And sometimes what we can do is we forget that there is an, another history, another story, another culture that we're reading into. And so for us to, in, in, in a proper way to interpret, to apply, and to understand, we must look at the historical context. And so I don't want to examine that as, as a way of introducing the beatitude today of blessed are the meek. So let's look at first, though, at some of the primary audience of Jesus to these beatitudes. 
the group that is listening to Jesus was a group who believed in many ways that they knew how to act spiritually proud. Or another way of saying it was they believed that they knew how to act spiritually self-sufficient. And as a result of their spiritual pride or their spiritual self-sufficiency, they believed that the coming Messiah, who they'd heard about, would come and commend them ultimately for their goodness and that he would then give them their rightful place and status in the world. They believed that because of their actions, because of their behaviors, because of their religious observance and their sufficiency in that, that the Messiah would come and commend them for their activity. It's not so unlike many of us sometimes when we live this way, that we believe when Jesus returns, he's going to commend me for what I've done. And that the way into the kingdom is through my obedience or through my behavior. Additionally, this primary audience believed, we're speaking of the Jewish audience, believed that the Messiah would ultimately deal gently with them and harshly with their oppressors who for the last hundred years had been the Romans. Currently, they were ruled by puppet kings of the Herodian family, and as we find out in the Gospels, a Roman governor by the name of Pilate. And the Jews hated Roman oppression. They hated it. So much so that many of them actually refused to admit that it existed when it very much did. And so all Jews hoped for deliverance through the Messiah. But many of them had different takes on what they believed that the Messiah would do or how he would ultimately deliver them. So a couple of these groups, one of these groups is the Pharisees, which maybe you're familiar with as you follow along in the Gospels. The Pharisees believed that the Messiah would come with great fanfare and with a mighty show of supernatural power that would throw off the yoke of Rome and would ultimately establish a Jewish state that would rule the world. This was their vision of the good life when the Messiah would come and deliver them. Or how about the Sadducees? They hoped that the Messiah would come and that he would lead them and deliver them through political compromise. And if you study the groups identified in the Gospels, the Sadducees were those who did already have political compromise. They were seen to be the ones that were kind of in bed with the political powers of the day. Then there were the Essenes, And they isolated both physically and philosophically from the rest of Judaism, living ultimately as if Rome and the rest of the world did not exist. And they imagined that the Messiah, when he would come, that he would deliver them and do very much the same, full isolation. But then there were the zealots, and maybe you're more familiar with the term zealots. And they were the most active and vocal proponents of deliverance ultimately expecting that the Messiah would come as a powerful, irresistible military leader who would conquer Rome in the same way that Rome had conquered them. And they claimed that they were willing to do whatever it took to make the Messiah's job easier through military strategy and overthrow, and over, to overthrow the groups. And in Jesus' day, the zealots were not a a huge number at that time, but many sympathized with them and ultimately wanted Rome overthrown. Now, if this is the backdrop, and as this is our context, you can imagine that none of these groups expected the Messiah to come in the way that Jesus did or to teach or claim the things 
that he did, especially as it relates to the good life. Think to the first beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit or those with poverty of spirit. Blessed are those who recognize their helplessness apart from God's help. Or beatitude number two, blessed are those who mourn, those who recognize that as they recognize their helplessness apart from God, that they mourn their own sin and they mourn the brokenness that they see in the world. Jesus' vision of the good life was so different than many of them had imagined or understood based on false interpretation and their own bias. And this explains and ultimately helps us understand why many Jews believe Jesus to be a strange preacher and ultimately not the one that they were looking for. And I would suggest that this challenges you and I to also ask a similar question of are you and I willing to consider our biases and potential misinterpretation regarding Jesus, the good life, and our own visions of hope? Does Jesus' vision, as we have been studying, cause us to pause, to look inward? Because it absolutely should. And so with this as our backdrop, let's go ahead and jump into the next beatitude, which is this. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, similar to the format that I followed a couple of weeks ago, I'm going to be answering a couple of questions. The first one being, who are the meek? And the second question being, what are the meek promised? So let's start with the first question. Who are the meek. Now, the Greek word for meek comes from the Greek word praos, which means mild, soft, or in other translations, maybe the one you're using this morning, it's translated gentle. The term at the time was sometimes used to describe a soothing medicine or a soft breeze, and it was also used of colts or other animals whose naturally wild spirits were broken by the trainer so that they could do more useful work. So think about this in the context of a colt or wild animal who's been broken in by their trainer so that they can do more useful work. Their power has been controlled. They've been humbled. And as a result, they are then gentle. Maybe a helpful understanding of what meek is referring to here is put this way. The meek are those who through their relationship with God, as we see in the, what blessed means, blessed is that someone's relationship with God is the foundation. So the meek are those who through their relationship with God have become gentle in spirit, humble, submissive, and tender-hearted. I'll say it again. The meek are those who through their relationship with God have become gentle in spirit, humble, submissive, and tender-hearted. Hearted. Now, to help us better understand the meek and then meekness lived out, let's look at the progression of the Beatitudes, because I think the progression of the Beatitudes actually gives us a bit of a hint as to the application or how to identify and see meekness. Now, as I've said, the first Beatitude, poverty of spirit, asks you and I to recognize and to realize our ultimate helplessness apart from God's help. Which leads then, as we said, to the second beatitude of mourning our sin and weakness. But then what happens after this 
is that we begin to be concerned with how people see us as we've identified this in our life. In other words, you and I may be willing to see ourselves as sinners, but what about allowing others to see us as sinners? And what Jesus is saying is that meekness, a tenderheartedness, a submissiveness, is the proper response and the proper attitude. So meekness is a gentle and humble attitude of allowing others to put the searchlight on me. Meekness is a gentle and humble attitude of allowing others to put the searchlight on me. Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it this way, meekness is essentially a true view of oneself, expressing itself in attitude and conduct with respect to others. It is therefore two things. It is my attitude towards myself and it is an expression of that in my relationship towards others. That as I recognize my poverty of spirit, as I mourn my sin, that it then changes the way that I see other people, the way that I understand myself in relationship with God, which will affect the way that we approach and see other people. And it should affect it in a positive way. In other words, the meek person does not try to justify or defend one's own way, rights, or ends. They do not assert themselves. They do not make demands for their position, privileges, possessions, or status. Because, remember, as they have looked at God, they have been humbled by who they truly are. And the result of this is that the meek person is someone readily willing to listen and to learn. Now think of this in contrast to the thinking of many in our world. As many people want to justify their own ways, defend their own rights, and ultimately serve their own ends. And what Jesus is saying is this is not the way of the meek kingdom, his meek kingdom, or the way of the meek who inherit that kingdom. Secondly, what we can understand about meekness and the meek is that the meek desire the interests of others to advance ahead of their own because they humbly see themselves and everyone else as being under God. To put it this way, the meek person does not see themselves as the primary mover in life. They simply see themselves as a part And therefore, they depend upon God and they consider the well-being of another as God would and as God does. As an example, if God is ultimately in control and if he is the ultimate judge, I don't need to be the judge of other people. Instead, I can trust him and ultimately act in his timing. My role then, or my opportunity then, is to simply love others and desire what is best for them. And when you think about this, this is freedom. This is a blessing. And what this then leads to is contentment in life, regardless of circumstance or situation. Now to clarify meekness, maybe you're starting to wonder some things about it. Meekness is not weakness, and it's not being wishy-washy. It is power ultimately surrendered to God's 
control. It is conviction with courage and with strength, but there is a gentleness and a humility to it. Remember, as we talked about, like a wild animal broken in by their trainer, we become meek when we are broken, mourned, and then respond to God's grace. This is ultimately the place of meekness. Or thirdly, the meek are those who, as we've said, through their relationship with God, lovingly trust him and hope in his timing and in his justice. The meek are not those who trust in their own organizing, not those who trust in their own powers or abilities or their own institutions. In this sense, meekness is therefore framed against wrath, anger, violence, theft, and violent takeovers. The meek willingly choose to absorb unjust conditions in a form of nonviolent resistance that creates a calm, countercultural community of love, justice, and peace. This past Monday, we celebrated and recognized Martin Luther King Jr. Day, a man who led a nonviolent resistance for African-American rights. You can think of other historical figures, Mahatma Gandhi as an example. Nonviolent resistance. Well, to help us better understand meekness in the scriptures, let's look at some examples of meekness that illustrate what I've just said about meekness. The first one I want to look at is in Genesis 13, and it's the example of Abraham and his nephew Lot. These verses are going to be appearing on the screen for you. So Abraham went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with him, into the Negeb. Now Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold, and Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. If you go to these, this passage, into this chapter, and you explore the further the context, there is a land that looks ultimately more desirable, and there is a land that's less fertile and desirable. And Abram, even though he is the senior, says to Lot, choose whichever you will take, and I will go in the other direction. He seeks the well-being of his nephew above himself and his own senior being the older. And he simply entrusts himself that whichever land he lands in, that God is with him and that God will hold him fast and God will protect him and bless him. Or how about another story in the Old Testament, also in Genesis, Genesis 45. Here we have the story of Joseph and his brothers. You may be familiar with the story of Joseph being sold to slavery in Egypt by his brothers. And this is then when all of the story comes back around at the very end, we see that Joseph gr grows and he has prominence in Egypt, becoming the second most powerful person in Egypt. And then his brothers actually come to Egypt because there's been a famine in the land and they don't have enough food. This is Joseph's response to his brothers. Genesis 45, 3 to 5. I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? 
But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. Skip ahead to verse 8. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. See what Joseph says? He's trusting God as the primary mover that he could have sought vengeance for his own rights against his brother. But instead he says, no, as you sold me, God had a greater purpose and a plan. And I am simply a part of that, that I would now be in my position and be part of saving the lives of many people through the way that I've led Egypt and storing up resources for the land, surrounding lands. He trusted God exemplified in his humility and his gentleness and his tenderness, exemplified and displayed in his relationship with his brothers. Or how about David? King David, 1 Samuel 24, verses 5 to 7. This is the story of how Saul goes into a cave as he's in pursuit of David to relieve himself. And he goes into the exact cave that David and his men are in. And David cuts a piece of Saul's robe. And here we have David's uh, complete feeling of, I should not have done that as, as this is all taking place. 1 Samuel 24, 5 to 7. And afterward, this is after David had cut the robe, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. David recognizes that in the act of cutting a piece of Saul's robe, that he has acted in a way that was not trusting God or God's timing. He knew he would be the next king. But he still understood in the present that Saul was still the Lord's anointed. And so he could not raise his hand against him or disrespect him in any way. Think about this, the tender-hearted quiet as Saul is pursuing David to kill him. David responds in such a way, this is meekness. You may not be surprised for me to present what I'm going to next, which is the greatest example of meekness in the scriptures, Jesus himself. I want to go to a couple examples from his life. There's many, but a couple of examples. The triumphal entry Jesus coming into Jerusalem. What do we read about him in Matthew 21, verse 5? Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Jesus comes into Jerusalem. God's son put on human flesh and rides on a humble animal, the coal of a donkey, not on a war horse. I mean, think about how he's challenging some of the worldviews of that day. Or how about Jesus when he's on trial? Matthew 26 and 27. The overall impression that we have of Jesus while he is on trial is an impression of poise. It is poise and strength, not having to assert himself You may be familiar with the narrative where Jesus is being wrongfully accused and Jesus does not defend himself. He remains silent, entrusting himself into the Father's hand, to the Father's will. 
Jesus' meekness is a meekness that is mighty and a gentleness that is strong. How about some examples of passages written about Jesus? Philippians 2, 4 to 8. This will be on the screen. Let each of you not look only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross." Now think about this. If there was anyone who had the right to assert themselves, who was not guilty of sin, who should not be on trial, who is it? Jesus. But look at what Jesus does. He humbles himself and he lives the meek life, showing us the way of his kingdom. I want to go to one more text describing Jesus, and this is actually Jesus describing himself and his heart. It's in Matthew 11. Matthew eleven twenty nine 29 specifically says this. These are the words of Jesus, red letter. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. This is the invitation to discipleship, being with Jesus and following his ways. What does he say? For I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. Commenting on this verse, Dane Ortland, in his book, Gentle and Lowly, my favorite book of 2020. If I could recommend one book to you from 2020, it would be this book, Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland. Here's what he writes, describing what Jesus has said here. The Greek word translated gentle here occurs just three other times in the New Testament. In the first beatitude, the meek will inherit the earth, Matthew 5, verse 5. In the prophecy, in Matthew 21, verse 5, quoting Zechariah 9, verse 9, that Jesus the King is coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey. And in Peter's encouragement to wives to nurture more than anything else the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. Wives, you're in good company. Meek, humble, gentle. Jesus is not trigger happy, not harsh, reactionary, easily exasperated. He is the most understanding person in the universe. The posture most natural to him is not a pointed finger, but open arms, gentle and lowly. This, according to his very own testimony, is Christ's very heart. This is who he is, tender, open, welcoming, accommodating, understanding, willing. Just sit with that for a moment. How amazing is this? How does it contrast maybe with a false understanding that you have of Jesus' heart towards you? 
This is what Jesus testifies about himself. And this is good news for many reasons, but a couple of them I want us to identify. The first is that Jesus, he can be our substitute because he lived the perfect, meek life for us. He can be a right substitute. He can perfectly trade places with us. It's not our natural tendency towards meekness. Even a quiet person, the natural tendency is not meekness as it's wisely and properly described in the scriptures. Meekness is only a result of the work and presence of the Holy Spirit within us, yet we still will fall short, yet Jesus lived a perfectly meek life to be our substitute. That's good news number one. But good news number two is that when we understand that Jesus is gentle and lowly, that he is meek and lowly, we come to know Jesus' own heart and his posture towards you and me. What this means is that Jesus is gentle, tender-hearted and meek, not looking to shove our sin in our face, but instead to bandage us, bandage us up, heal our wounds, fill us up. And it's in my experience, it's when I sit with Jesus come to understand my helplessness and mourn my sin that I begin to see myself and others differently resulting in meekness. When I receive from Jesus, it's amazing. Well, this then leads us, we have an understanding of who the meek are. This now leads us to the second question of what's promised to the meek? And the first promise, we can't miss this, is blessedness. Blessedness. As it says, blessed are. The blessed, as we've been talking about in the Beatitudes, is being divinely happy. As God gives the meek his own joy and gladness through his relationship with them, not dependent upon their circumstances. So there's a blessedness to the meek. But then we read, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the land. Now this evokes language and imagery of Genesis 12, in which land is promised to Abram and his, towards his descendants. It evokes Psalm 37, these words on the screen. Psalm 37, 10 to 11, and then we'll jump forward to 22. We read, in just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. For those blessed by the Lord shall inherit the land, but those cursed by him shall be cut off. Now take these verses alone. This is in direct contradiction to the philosophical materialism of our day where the wicked seem to inherit the land. But what is promised here is that the land will be given not to the aggressive, wicked, domineering, but to the meek, the gentle, tender-hearted, and humble. Lloyd-Jones says, World conquest, possession of the whole universe, given to the meek of all people. The world thinks in terms of strength and power, of ability, self-assurance, and aggressiveness. That is the world's idea of conquest and possession. The more you assert yourself and express yourself, the more you organize and manifest your powers and ability, the more likely you are to succeed and to get on. Yet this is not the way of Jesus and it's not the way of the kingdom of God. And so we are told that the meek will inherit the land. 
And the inheriting of the land can be understood in two ways. And the first is inheriting land, the land in the present. And that only the genuinely meek person will be content. Their ego is not inflated to the point that he or she believes that he must always have more because what they recognize is that they ultimately possess everything in Christ and they trust Christ to be over everything. We can think of the well-being of others ahead of ourselves. We can allow others to put the flashlight or searchlight upon ourselves. We don't need to continue accumulating material possessions because we recognize our true spiritual need and we can rest content as we grow in meekness. A person who is truly meek is a person who is always satisfied. He is a man or woman who is already content in the present. But then there's also an inheriting of the land in the future. And we can understand this as the new heavens and the new earth where the meek will inherit the land because it will be a prerequisite of meekness. The earth is going to be the, same, the scene of the coming kingdom of God, a renewed earth. Like we're told that we will receive renewed bodies. Paradise will once again be regained if we think of the language of Genesis 1 verse 28. And so we not only have hope for the future, but we have hope for the present. Followers of Jesus not just look forward to eternal life, but we live now with eternal living understanding the blessedness of our relationship with Jesus, how it leads to contentness through meekness. This is a challenging beatitude. And as we respond today, there's maybe no better day to take communion, to remember the life that Jesus lived on our behalf the life that Jesus lived to give us freedom, to give us joy in the midst of difficult circumstances, the life he lived to to give us freedom from oppression, to free us from our sin, to free us from feeling unworthy or our shame, to invite us into relationship, to invite us to eternal living now to invite us to a life of joy, to invite us to a life where we experience the Holy Spirit and the the fruit of the Spirit as a byproduct of his presence. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. Go down the list. Self-control. This is his invitation. And in communion, we remember and we celebrate. And so what I would invite you to do today as we take and as we celebrate communion, as you do this in your home right now, maybe on your own or those that you're gathered with, is to thank Jesus for his life, to thank Jesus for his sacrifice, to thank Jesus for his resurrection, which guarantees and affirms our standing with him both now and forever. Resurrected life, resurrected bodies, a renewed earth one day. So with that, why don't we start with the bread? Jesus was celebrating the Last Supper with his disciples. He said, take this bread And it represents my broken body for you. So wherever you are today, would you take a piece of bread, a piece of pita, whatever it is that you're using, and would you take a moment, reflect upon, thank Jesus for his broken body and celebrate the fact of the gift he's given you of breaking his body so yours does not need to ultimately be broken eternally, but will be renewed as his body 
was renewed when he came back to life. Let's spend a couple moments in silence reflecting on this and thanking Jesus for his sacrifice of his body. After the bread, Jesus took the cup and he said, this is a symbol and take this and do this in remembrance of me, of my blood shed for you. So let's now take a moment celebrating and remembering and thanking and confessing to Jesus who sacrificed himself, who shed his blood for you and for me. And so Jesus, we thank you so much. We thank you for your life, your death, and for your resurrection and what it means for us. Eternal living. I pray that you would soften us, that you'd break us to the point of meekness. God, that we would not look ultimately to our own interests, but that we would look first and foremost to the interests of others. So many of us are, are defensive because we fear other people's perceptions of us or maybe even our own view of ourselves. God, would we bring a tender, humble heart to working alongside you and people in this world who are being treated unjustly. God, we, would we be a nonviolent resistance? Would we figure out ways together, led by your spirit, how to stand up for the rights of people whose rights are not being stood for, yet who are so dear and close to your heart. But God, may our motive not be for our own interests or for our own glory or well-being, but for the interests of other people, the Imago Dei, those made in your image. We thank you for what you're doing we pray that we would be obedient. In your son's name we pray. Amen.